Okay, today is January the 20th, 2011. It just happens to be Carrie and I's 32nd anniversary. Well, I'm sorry, she, uh, uh, she, she couldn't make it. She was uh, not up to it tonight. So, anyway, I will. 32 years goes by pretty fast, doesn't it? What, 60-something? 58? 58 years, yeah. <laughs> Did somebody say the first decade was the hardest? Oh, the first 80. Oh, okay. I see he just got an elbow in the ribs. Okay, let's take a few moments to prepare ourselves for the study of God's Word this evening. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who and what You are and for Your mighty Word where we find that You are in control of all things. As we study the eschatology and we see how You can handle the hardest of the incorrigibles and the exceedingly wicked, it gives us great courage that You can handle our puny problems. We thank You that You have revealed these things to us. We pray that You will help us to file them into long-term memory and keep them close to our tongues so that we are able to tell others about what lies ahead and who's in control. We pray that You will help us to focus and to assimilate the doctrine this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue with Armageddon and the Second Advent, only we've already gone through the eight stages in a more comprehensive way. And this evening, we're going to begin with kind of a nutshell look at it. And most of what you're going to be seeing is Scripture. If you're taking notes, it'd be easy to take notes because all you have to do is look at the different stages and make a notation of the scriptures but most of all i want you to concentrate on the scriptures and having an overall view of what's going to take place when jesus christ returns this is lesson 13 and don't worry about that date the date isn't uh, isn't what tonight's date is but we've got the right month the right year that's pretty good <clears throat> You'll remember last time we just touched on this. Now this is going to be a, a quick review of what we've been studying for about four or five lessons. God has already started getting everything ready for the end time. And the first thing that He did was to bring Israel back into the land as a nation. And it's easy for us to look back on history now May 14, 1948, and see, okay, yeah, Israel became a nation. We kind of take that for granted. Most people living today were born after Israel had become a nation. But there are still some of us that were born before then. And for the longest time, no one thought that that was even a possibility. That has never happened before in the history of the world that a nation would go out and be non-existent for over 2,000 years and then come back again and have the same language. And yet it shouldn't be surprising because in many places in the Old Testament, God through His prophets said that this was going to come to pass, and indeed it did. Anytime someone doubts the veracity of the Bible and asks you, why do you believe 
that the Bible is the Word of God and it's true, all you have to do is say, look at Israel. There's no other, there's no other people, there's no other nation. Israel is unique. And God has told us in His Word that when He regathers Israel back, it's for a purpose. And so what we see on the board here is just a brief look at the times that Israel has been exiled out of the land. Of course, we're, we know it's the promised land. Start out the land of Canaan, but then the, the Jews took it over by a guy by the name of Joshua. And now it's Israel. They were exiled in 1914, that's B.C., by a drought. You remember the, the account. Joseph went into Egypt, not, by, not voluntarily, but he was taken. You know the, the whole story about that. And they were delivered and they came back from Egypt in 1445. 722 B.C., the, Assyrian, the Assyrians captured the ten northern tribes. Not only were they exiled, they never came back as a nation. But just in case you're wondering, they will be part of the regathering that has already taken place both the, in unbelief and in the believing, as we'll see. In 586 B.C., they were taken, that this would be the uh, southern kingdom, was taken by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldeans. They came back to the Promised Land in 516 B.C. In 70 A.D., they were exiled out of the land in, uh, by the Romans and they remained out for nearly 2,000 years. And then they came back, they were regathered, and they were regathered actually in, in two phases. The first phase, which I show here in red, was what I've been speaking about, May 14, 1948. That's Israel regathered in unbelief. Phase two is from, the, and, and from, both of these phases, by the way, is from the four corners of the world. That's how you know it cannot apply to any ancient history. Any history uh, before time, they were, they were uh, regathered from a nation, but never from all four corners of the earth. And so the first phase has already taken place. Israel, for the most part, is a country in, of, of unbelievers. They're still rejecting their Messiah. Phase two will occur at the second advent when Jesus Christ comes back and takes over the title deed of planet earth and he's going to start his millennial reign. Again, the Jews are going to be regathered, but this time in belief. And you see that in green. <clears throat> Excuse me. reason I have this color-coded is because in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33 through 38, it explains a lot. Why don't you go there in your Bible? You might make, want to, uh, may, may want to make a notation as we go. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33 through 38. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. See, this is what it's going to take for Israel, for the Jews to accept their king. They're not going to do it voluntarily. The things that happened during the tribulational period, the last seven years of the 490 years of the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 9, are going to take place. That's what it's going to take for Israel to accept their Messiah. And then in verse 34, now remember the red in this little code I have here is Israel regathered in unbelief. 
Verse 34, And I shall bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and wrath poured out. This is the phase one end time regathering. That's what's already taken place. And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face. Now, the blue is the referring to unbelievers that are judged at the end of the tribulation. Are you all getting this? Am I going too fast? First of all, he's going to regather them in unbelief. And then the next thing on the agenda is he's going to take care of uh, unbelievers, He says, And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And then the last part here in green. And I shall make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant, this has to do with the believing Jews at the phase two or end time regathering. See how much is in just this one scripture. And then it goes back to dealing with the unbelievers. And I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So he's, God is working. He's been working. He's going to continue to work to bring about what he has decided to do, especially with regards to Israel. Now, we're going to look at these phases, only they're very shortened. And there's, for the most part, nothing but scriptures to show you how, what he's going to do next. Israel's in the land. They're in unbelief. And there's going to be a time, yet future, that he's going to gather all the people from all over the world under the encouragement of Antichrist and the false prophet and so forth. He's going to gather them, and we know we've already seen, to the valley of Armageddon. This is the gathering place. This is where they're going to use their strategy and move out from there. Revelation chapter 13, verse 13 and 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And, he, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. That was Revelation 13, 13 and 16. Joel chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. This is actually, a, I wouldn't necessarily, it's a challenge. It's God saying, bring the best you've got. Because they're coming to do battle against the Lord. And of course, what does Psalm chapter 2 say that God does when he sees, actually he's bringing all this about and all the mighty warriors and all the uh, calamity that's going to take place and all the threats and all of the uh, machinations of those that are going to be challenging him. What does he do? Do you remember in chapter 2 of Psalms what he does? He laughs. He laughs at it. No problem with him. This is somewhat of a taunt or a challenge. And he's the one that's bringing it about. He's using Antichrist and his plan for his own purpose. Antichrist is going to be gathering all the nations of the earth to Armageddon, the armies that is, in order to do battle against the Lord. And yet that's exactly what the Lord wants him to do. He's going to take care of them all in, in that area. Not in Armageddon, but in one place. Actually two places. The next thing with regards to the strategy is the destruction of Babylon. I'm not going to linger here very long because we've already gone over this in detail. Religious Babylon is going to exist the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Antichrist is going to come in and then he's going to be demanding worship. That's going to take place at the abomination of desolation when he goes in and defiles the temple. 
And from that point on, there is another, a new religion which he, which he demands worship, Antichrist, and then there's the economic and political one world order. This is going to be happening in the last three and a half years, and Jesus Christ is going to dispense with this. In Revelation 17, verses 16 through 17, And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, that's religious Babylon, the first three and a half years, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. For God has put in her in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. God uses even the wicked to fulfill his plan. So do you all remember, do you understand, the first part of the seven years of the tribulation, you're going to have religious Babylon, the whore that rides the beast. At the midpoint, Antichrist is no longer going to abide that He's not going to use that religion anymore. And it's going to be, according to this, you've seen, you saw the description, is going to be annihilated. And then he is going to say, I demand worship from everyone, the mark of the beast and so forth. That's what goes on there. Economic and political Babylon will be destroyed in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 10. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. To make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. What, is, what comes to your mind when you hear that? And he will exterminate its sinners from it. Your mind should just, boop, baptism of fire. For the stars of heaven and their constellation will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when, uh, and when it rises. The moon will not shed light. Then we have Revelation 16, 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. Now this is going to, to take place when Jesus Christ makes his victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. This is when this great earthquake is going to take place. And I have a note here, Isaiah 14, 1 through 22. You remember what that's about? That describes what's going to happen to Antichrist. When he is killed, his soul will go into Hades, in the compartment of torments, and it describes what people are going to think there. The souls that are there are going to be astonished. And then we have a little kind of a parenthetical part uh, where you have the five I wills talking about Satan and his uh, proclamations of becoming, uh, taking God's place. And then it goes back and it gives the, the rest of the Scripture has to do with what's going to happen to the Antichrist body. Remember, it's going to, when Jesus Christ gets a hold of him, he's going to be split open from thigh to neck. He won't be buried. His family's going to be destroyed. He's going to get his upcomings. The fall of Jerusalem is in Zechariah 14:2. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and the half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So when they move out of the area of Megiddo, the valley of Armageddon, the satanic forces under the leadership of Antichrist are going to move against Jerusalem, and this is what's going to take place there. And they're going to be able to take half the city. They'll kill two-thirds of the Jews, but one-third is going to hold out, and they're going to hold their ground. That's the fall of Jerusalem. In Micah chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. How many millions of Arabs have that attitude today? They want nothing more than to gloat over the annihilation and the demise of Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand His purpose, for He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze. These, the horn and so forth has to do with power and might. That you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. That's what's going to happen to these that go against 
the Lord and uh, actually it's the Lord that's going to do the battle. We're going to come with him and watch. The next part is the armies of the Antichrist at Basra. Now I've talked to a few people about this before and they all had the same response when I told them about Basra. And they said, what? Basra? What's Basra? I said, well, it's right there in your Bible. <laughs> I was on the phone so they couldn't see that. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I didn't really do that anyway. <laughs> Jeremiah 49, 13 through 14. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all cities will become perpetual ruins. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. When they go against Jerusalem, they, they can't just overtake Jerusalem completely. They put a holding force there. They go down to Basra. Why do they go to Basra? That's where the Jews are. What is Satan's main purpose? To annihilate the Jews. If he can annihilate all the Jews, then, <coughs> excuse me, then he has won the angelic conflict. God cannot fulfill his promise to the Jews if there are no Jews. So that's his strategy. And this is the scripture that talks about them going down to Basra. That's where the Jews will be hiding out at least those from Judah, and they will be in tents. Jeremiah 49:22. Behold, he will mount up and swoop like an eagle and spread out his wings against Basra, and the hearts of the mighty men of Edom in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. That's referring to the unbelievers. When Jesus Christ... Where is Jesus Christ going to return to Basra? And this is describing the hearts of those who have assembled there to dispense with the Jews, and to the, their utter astonishment, Jesus Christ is going to break through the clouds. His description is in Revelation chapter 19, and it says that their heart will be like, the, like a woman in labor. I suppose that that is very uncomfortable. Then you have the national regeneration of Israel. In Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Who is speaking here? Jesus Christ. He says, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, From now on you will not see me until... You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what Christ said when he left. You don't want me? Fine. I will not return until you are calling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he came the first time, they didn't have anything to do with him. They rejected him. Hosea 5.15 I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's very important, that last verse. Because that's the only way that they're going to seek him is in their great affliction. Nothing short of that is going to turn them away from their tradition and to the truth of Jesus Christ, him being the Messiah. Zechariah thirteen eight and 9. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. This is referring to the Jews. Two-thirds of them are going to perish. But the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire. It's going to be tough going for that one-third of the Jews who are facing... Who are they facing? All the nations of the world. And yet they're going to hold out. They're going to be tested. He says, and I will bring the third part. That would be the third of the Jews that are holding out in Jerusalem and still fighting... He said, I will bring them through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. I don't know if you see this or not, but that is absolutely beautiful. The Lord loves them enough to do what it takes for this to come about. 
And he knows, he's omniscient, he knows all things. And for them to say, for, uh, that, uh, for him to say, this is my people, and they will say, this is my God, that is a wonderful day. But it's just sad that so much has to take place, so much devastation, so much horror before that comes about. And there are going to be some Jews, just like there are some Gentiles, that will never say that. There is nothing that anyone can do, including the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and all of His omnipotence, cannot force anyone to say, the Lord is my God. Because He has given them volition. And they will use it to the bitter end, rejecting Him and cursing Him. And so He will give them what they want. This is what we're going to see when we go back to... 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, it's describing that. They're going to get exactly what they want. They don't want Him. They don't want any part of Him. That's exactly what they're going to get for all eternity. He's simply giving them what they demand. The second coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom? Now, this is so great. This is what's... This is a, a, a somewhat of a vision, you might say, and it's describing someone is coming from Edom. It's even going to say here, Basra. And it's describing Jesus Christ after he has taken care of Antichrist and his forces there. They're retreating back to Jerusalem. He's hot on their trail. And he's going to finish it off in the valley of Jehoshaphat in the Kendron Valley. And this is describing him. Who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from where? Basra. That's where he came. That's where he came down. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness and mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the wine press. I have trodden the wine through a, a trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. This tells us that when, when these things take place, we're not going to be out there like you saw in Braveheart, in one of those big battles, and you're uh, wheeling your sword. We're going to be bystanders. We're going to be watching this. Christ doesn't need our help. He's going to take care of it alone. Yes? I don't know. I think they're going to be too busy to bother, really. <laughs> it's not us that's going to be impress them. Uh, it's Revelation chapter 19, the description of the Lord. That's what's going to be. Well, it's, I, I, I couldn't answer that, but... Um, yeah, we're going to have resurrection bodies, but our, uh, you know, we're not going to look like the Lord. I mean, our, we're going to get a resurrection body that is likened to Christ's resurrection body. But there is no body like the Lord's body. <laughs> so maybe right <laughs> yeah, but who would get it? <laughs> uh, verse 3, I have trodden the wine uh, trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. Raiment, of course, is his clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I, I think about this. Jesus Christ is not up there sleeping. He knows exactly what's going on on planet Earth, and he's going to take care of it in his way and in his time. And when it is time... There's, not, there's never been anything like this wrath poured out then. And that's what he's describing when he's... And you see all his uh, blood sprinkled on his garment and so forth. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. It's in his heart now. He's biding his time to the perfect time when he's going to take care of business. And my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished. And there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. This is Jesus Christ vindicating his word. No one can do it other than he himself. 
I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's right. This is baby Jesus. <laughs> Only now he's coming back as a lion. And all these people that like to think of, you need cute little baby Jesus. And they, they don't see, they don't want to be accountable. Well, they're going to be accountable whether they like it or not. God is going to see to it. Habakkuk 3.3 3. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are in Edom. They're in the right there, the area of... Um, uh, what's the place, the rocks? Um, Petra. Petra, yeah. Sila, that's a, a resting note there. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. See, what we're seeing, what, when we, we're going to get back to, to our Scripture, Second Thessalonians 1.10, what we're seeing is when He comes back, it is going to be so glorious for some and so horrible for others. There is going, there's not going to be any in, in between. No one is going to be saying, oh, well, Christ is coming back. Oh, well, that's fine. You know, you know, they just take it or leave it. There isn't going to be any taking or leave it. People are either going to be praising Him as loud as they can shout or else they are going to be gnashing their teeth. There is no in between. Isn't there something in the scriptures that talks about them um, hiding in, in caves and warning the mountains to come down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's in Revelation chapter 6. Yeah, that, that's, that's part of the sealed judgments. That's going to happen in the first part of the tribulation. That's even before it gets to this. Yeah. See, it, it, we're dealing with the, the very end of the end. Remember we went to the seventh bowl judgment? And that's the last wrath being poured out. But even from the very beginning, and the, you have seven sealed judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. And even, it's not going to be a pretty sight. It's not going to be a holiday from the very get-go. There's going to be trouble. So it's, he's still extending grace to all this. They still have an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. They, they have an opportunity. Um, but the ones that he is dispensing with are the ones who are hardcore negative that no matter what would never accept him. And they've got to go. Then we have the, uh, the battle of, uh, from Basra to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's, remember, Basra is down here in the south below the Dead Sea. And after Jesus Christ returns there and he wipes them out, they're retreating. They're going back to where? Jerusalem. And that's where he's going to end it. Joel 3, 12 through 13. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. See, all the nations are still involved in this. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And where is this taking place? In the Valley of Jehoshaphat, right outside from the temple. It's the Kidron Valley. That's where this is going to take place. Revelation 14, 19 through 20. So the angel swung his sickle to earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Do you see how over and over it talks about the winepress? That is a metaphor for all this wickedness as if it, you put it in this big vat and then Jesus Christ comes down and squashes them. And what comes out? Blood for 200 miles. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Yeah, that's a lot of blood, all right. Um, and we saw that that could be either from, we're not sure whether he's talking about from Jerusalem down to Basra and back, which would be about 200 miles, or whether it's talking about from Jerusalem, I mean from Megiddo, all the way down to Basra is 200 miles. We're not, I'm not sure, but there, uh, no matter what, you can look at this and see this is not a pretty sight. And you can't deal with some people short of this, and God knows it. But here's the good thing. We don't have to worry about it. 
Jesus is going to take care of this. No, it's probably, uh, it doesn't say, but, uh, and some say this is figurative. There's speculation because you, you, some may even say that it's hyperbole, exaggeration. Blood as high as a horse battle for 200 miles, how, many, how much would that be? But you have to remember there are millions in these armies that are against, are against him. Then we have Joel chapter uh, 3, verse 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to restore it. See, the Jews have been robbed and kicked around for 2,000 years. And he's going to restore it. And he says, when I do that, see, when Jesus Christ returns, these things are going to be, uh, all the fortunes are going to be returned. What happened when the Jews, the Israelites, left Egypt? What did they take with them? Do you all know? They took the spoils of Egypt. They had been under slavery and abuse for 430 years. And God said, when you leave, just haul it, whatever you, whatever you can carry, have at it. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't gonna say that part. <laughs> what did they do with it? Yeah, they made a golden calf. That's how thankful they were. Um, so he's gonna restore the fortunes of, Ju- of uh, Judah and Jerusalem. See, when Christ returns the second advent, there's gonna be such destruction. But he's gonna restore this. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is. Like I said, outside of Jerusalem, Kindred Valley. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. God says, Cursed is he who divides my land. And I shudder when I think of what we've done to just encourage that to happen. The idea... The insanity of thinking that Israel can give up land for peace. There is no peace till the Prince of Peace comes, and this is what we are going. This is what we've been studying. Is what it's going to take to bring about peace. What did it say? He's, God is challenging all these unbelievers. Get your plows and 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 your pruning hooks and turn them into spears and 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 uh, spears. Come at me. What? Give me your best shot. And he's going to annihilate all that. And then what does he say when he starts his kingdom? You take your spears and your, and your uh, swords and you turn them into uh, uh, pruning hooks and plows. He, just the opposite happens then. Because he is going to bring peace. One reason there's going to be peace because all these hell raisers are going to be where they belong in hell. No religion. No, no Satan. Satan's going to be locked up. By the way, the word Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. That would be Jehovah or the Lord judges. That's what Jehoshaphat means. And that's where he's going to do it. And then we have the victory ascent on the Mount of Olives. This is Zechariah 14, 3 through 4. Then the Lord will go forth. Now remember, let's, I don't want to go too fast here. They were assembled in Armageddon. They come down to Jerusalem. They engage. They fight there. Then they go down to Basra. The Lord returns at Basra. He takes care of those armies there. Then he goes back to Jerusalem because there are still forces there. And he's going to engage them outside of Jerusalem. In Well, it might be in Jerusalem now. But he's going to engage them, the valley of Jehoshaphat. All the armies then are going to be dispensed with. They're done. They're toast. Then we see the victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. That's what this is in Zechariah 14, 3 through 4. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Notice, first we have the fight. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Doesn't mean the day that he fights necessarily. I guess it would be on the, on the same day, but it's saying in the in, in that day when this takes place, when the when he goes back to the, the uh, valley of Jehoshaphat, then his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. 
which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The fighting takes place first. It does not say that the fighting takes place on the Mount of Olives. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and half, and the other half towards the south. Now, <laughs> this is, we know that there's going to be this tremendous earthquake. It's going to be felt worldwide. Worldwide. And Jerusalem is going to be split. It's not even going to look the same. And then in Revelation 16, 17 through 21, this is when we see the last bowl judgment being poured out. When this is poured out, it's the last wrath that God is putting on earth. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. This is the last bowl. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven bowls. And when you go through Revelation, you see what all these entail. You'll understand why the Bible says there will never be a time as horrible as the tribulation, nor was there ever before a time that even comes close to that. And aren't you thankful we're not going to go through it? When he says he's done, that's what he's talking about. And then he says, And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give up her cup, give her the cup of his wine of first wrath. In other words, all this Babylon, this one world religion, this one world political system, this one world economy, that satanic grip on all that is now, boom! It's gone. He's it's done with. Babylon. Now, we've talked about this earlier. Some say this is going to be a literal city on the Euphrates. I can't say one way or the other. Maybe I can do more study and be more definitive one way or the other. Some say it's a literal city that's going to be split in three three ways. Others say it's the, it's the political, I mean, it's the, the systems, you know, the three systems and so forth. So God is going to take care of, of Babylon... Uh, the great, uh, the cup of his wine of his fierce wrath. Then verse 20, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. We're talking about a big scope here, aren't we? I don't know. I can't tell you exactly what that means. As if what happened? What happened to the islands? What happened to the mountains? This is some earthquake. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, I've told you, and I'll tell you one more time what my hypothesis is about this. It appears to me that God is going to take care of all the armies that he brings against himself in that Armageddon campaign that we were looking at on all the different stages and so forth. And once the armies are dispensed with and he goes up to the top of the Mount of Olives, it appears that that's when the earthquake is going to take place. And when the earthquake takes place, it's feasible that the nations and their cities will become rubble. Can you imagine what downtown Houston would look like if this type of earthquake hit that you can feel it, feel it around the world? And maybe as they're crawling out of the rubble, there's still, still some stiff-necked uh, Christ-haters, and they're going to be met with 100-pound hailstones. I think that's pretty well curtains for many, for all. And what do we call that? We were studying it's the baptism of fire. John the Baptist talked about that. That's when, when uh, he said, I was... Uh, uh, I baptize you with your water, but there's one coming after me that is greater than I am, not fit to loosen his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Most people just zoom right back that, by that. Well, I've read the whole Bible, 
And they go through verses like that at breakneck speed and they don't have a clue what they've read. But when you slow down and you start connecting the dots, then you understand, oh yeah, that's the baptism of fire. Fire is judgment. In the Old Testament, what did they do when they killed the lamb or whatever it was? What did they do with it? They put it on a fire and the fire represented God's judgment. The lamb was judged rather than the person. And that was symbolic of the Lamb of God that would come and take away the sins of what? The world. You see all the purple stars? That means the end. <laughs> okay, yeah, if you have some questions, uh, I'll be glad to take them now. See, as soon as... I, I don't think we have time tonight to do it. I know we don't. But... Uh, Next Tuesday, we're going to go back to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 9b. And it's talking about those who are going to be rebellious, those who are going to be swept away by the baptism of fire. Are, and they're going to be away from the presence of the Lord. They want to be away from the Lord. He's going to give them exactly what they want. And this word prosipone means uh, the eye or face. They'll never be face to face with Jesus Christ apart from seeing him come down out of heaven in such a rage. His eyes are as a flaming fire and a sword comes out of his mouth. The sword is the word of God. He can speak and poof, they're toast. Okay, what's your question? I've got <laughs> Okay. I don't have my map up. That's okay, I'll find it. Uh, Y'all don't have to see me searching here. Y'all can be thinking of another question if you want. Maps are really handy, aren't they? Mike, can you repeat the question sometimes? Because people are hearing this may not know what. Yeah, I will. Uh, we need to do that, don't we? The question was, I believe, where's Megiddo? Okay. Here we go. I have a couple of maps here. Here's one of them. Okay. <clears throat> this is the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. Here's Jerusalem. And Megiddo is up here. Yeah, it's, it's a long ways. It, uh, Ken, you were over there. Do you remember how long, how far it is from a ghetto down to Jerusalem? Okay, I, I'm thinking it's, there. There, the, it seems like it's a hundred miles from a ghetto down to Jerusalem, and then about a hundred miles from Jerusalem down to Basra. Here's Basra, and that some would say that 200 miles that the blood flows, that it goes from Megiddo down to uh, Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem all the way to here, which would be uh, about 200 miles. Well, it, that's one, unless you speculate that once they start coming down, that uh, they're already hit. Or else, you know, I don't buy into that one as much as this. That from uh, Jerusalem down to Basra is about 100 miles, and and so they're going to be. Be uh, they're going to be hit all the way down here to Basra and all the way back, which would be 200 miles. And it's not they won't come in a straight shot anyway, like this. You know they'll probably have to go around like this and come around whatever it is. So that's the speculation with regards to the 200 miles. The 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 ideas that they where is it talking about? And, and this makes sense with the 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 program that I've been presenting to you that that would be feasible. That it would be from here all the way to here, and then when the here all the way back. Well, yeah. In, in Revelation 19, it talks about a, a vivid description of Jesus Christ's coming. Now, let me ask you all this. When we go to Revelation chapter 19, it's talking about his eyes are a flame of fire and, the, and a sword comes out of his mouth and there's written on his 
uh, Thy, and uh, a name that no one knows except himself and all this. Uh, where does that take place? Right here. If you connect in the dot, that's where the people, the, the Jews, remember, uh, there's a lot I left out in this summary, but the Jews in Judah here, when the abomination of desolation takes place in Matthew 24, the Lord tells them, get out of Dodge, leave. And there are going to be those that obey that, and they're going to go over here to Basra. They're living in tents because their homes are over here, and he's going to come here and take care of these people first. And so when they, when they come down here to get the Jews, there's a concentration of them there. And the Lord is going to uh, protect them. And all he has to do is slay them with the word of his mouth. They, they, he doesn't have to go down there and get in a Zorro sword fight with them. He speaks and Antichrist is split open from thigh to neck. Yeah, how many Assyrians did he kill already? What was the, do y'all remember the number? How many was it? 185,000. Uh, yeah, and, and this, he could just say, I don't know what he's going to say. Whatever it is, it's going to be pretty powerful because 185,000 Syrians the next morning are dead. Well, a lot of this is figurative. I mean, he doesn't have to get out and uh, put them all in a vat and start doing uh, the Jolly Green, Green Giant jig on them. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, this is Jordan over here. Uh, this is Edom. Moab's right here. This is Moab. This is Edom. Teman. Jordan. Moab and Edom are both in Jordan. I know Moab is probably part of Edom. I don't have lines here exactly where the it, it, uh, the boundaries are. Remember it says Teman. See, here's Basra. Here's Teman right here, right close by. Mm-hmm. It's in Matthew 24. Yeah. Yeah. This is where they there's there's scriptures that say this is where they're going over in this area, in in Moab. So the believing Jews who believe the word go. Obviously, the ones who don't know where they end up. Yeah. And the leaders. They'll end up in that trough of being trodden. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. That's in Jeremiah. You're talking about the clans. Are, there's going to be a holding force that's described in Jeremiah in Jerusalem that are holding out. That's what was described in uh, Zechariah. Yes, yes. Uh huh. And then, but there's there's going to be a concentration of Jews in Jerusalem. There's going to be a concentration here. And. It appears that they're going to leave Megiddo and come down and, and, and try to take Jerusalem. They're not completely successful. Then they move down here to try to take this. They're squashed here, and then they go back to Jerusalem, and the end of it is going to be there in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jesus Christ goes up to the top of the Mount of Olives. Jer Jerusalem is split in half, and this earthquake that could... Uh, could mean that it's talking about the entire earth is going to uh, the is going to be changed the topography. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's. I don't know whether he's going to go up to the top of Mount of Olives before this happens, or he's going to once he finishes business here in the Valley of Jehoshaphat that he's going to enter in Jerusalem by the east gate. Uh, Yeah, that were, yeah, he goes into the east gate to deliver them, but he'll probably do that after he's already taken care of business out here. Uh, of course, the uh, Arabs think that he, he can't go through there because they boarded it up. <laughs> the east gate is, uh, it, it, they've got boards across there, so. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? Is this going to be like not millions of billions? Like, I mean, you say these different nations, mm -hmm. every nation, every place on earth is going to have hundreds of, or millions of people. 
come travel all the way to Israel to try to destroy the Lord? Armies. Armies. Armies of every nation are going to gather here, and they're all going to be involved in trying to overthrow Christ and His people. But there's still going to be population all over the earth. So I, mean, I don't know. Uh, we'll, you know we'll, we'll, we'll be seeing the Lord fight our battles. Only we do that today, don't we? But we don't see it in a visual way that we're going to see it then. But in that day, we're going to literally see Him fight for us in a way that no one's going to forget. Well, they're on board with Antichrist. And by the time, by the time, see, this is the very end of the tribulation. These people are so exceedingly evil. And they have preyed upon Christians, and well, not Christians. These will be believers and Jews to the point to where uh, those who make it out, make it through here, are going to be not very, there's not going to be a large number of them. There's not going to be that many people, that, uh, you know, relatively speaking, to populate the, the millennium when Jesus Christ returns. Of course, when the millennial, com- millennial comes, millennium, it's going to be perfect environment, and they're going to populate it like rabbits. There's not, there's not going to be any sickness and so forth. What about like, the rest of the people who are not in the army and stuff like here in the U.S. and everything? Are they going to or are they just going to be watching television? Or, I mean, well, they're going to see... Yeah, the television is going to be involved because they're going to see the, uh, the, the two witnesses, probably Moses and Elijah, killed. And they're going to be gloating over it. They're not going to bury them. Their bodies are going to be laying out in the streets. And then they're going to see them go, you know, go up to heaven. That's going to make them choke. And then what I'm saying is it appears to me that when this earthquake takes place, he's already taken care of the armies. And when this earthquake takes place, it might be how he takes care of the rest of the population of planet Earth that are unbelievers. Because when he starts his millennial kingdom, there's going to be zero zilch, no unbelievers. It's just going to be nothing but believers that start his millennial reign. That's what the baptism of fire is all about. So one reason I went through all this, because if you look in your notes, you'll see that we just finished studying the baptism of fire before we got into this. And you probably already have made the connection all this vivid description and so forth is really describing the baptism of fire, what the Lord is going to do with all these unbelievers. Don't, y'all, don't all of y'all long for the Lord to return and set all of this right? Um, this, we live in an exceedingly wicked and vile and evil, God-hating, grace-hating society. And it's not just ours, it's worldwide. And the Bible gives us hope. Jesus Christ is coming again. When He's coming back, He's going to have everybody's attention. I don't know. Yeah. These are the kind of questions I get from the young people. <laughs> well, what kind of horses are there? Are they going to be Opelousa or they're going to be white? <laughs> okay, well, listen, we're past time. Uh yeah. <laughs> well, there'll be more next Tuesday and Sunday. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your revelation of what is yet future. What it does is give us hope and courage now. It gives us confidence. We can't wait till our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, mounts that white stallion and breaks through the clouds and takes care of us, the evil. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll be singing that for all eternity. And the, the best is yet to come. We get in our daily routines and our grinds, and some of us go through horrible testing. But we need to realize that you're teaching us that your grace is always sufficient and that you are teaching us to trust you. If we can trust you with the trials and tribulations that we face, surely we can trust you with the great awesome things that you're going to do in the future. We don't earn or deserve any of this. What we need to do is shout it from the rooftops and tell everyone what a great God we have. 
You've enabled us to see what no one else can see, which is the future. We see it through the eyes of faith and through your word. So we pray that it will sink deep into each and every one of our souls through the eyes of faith to give you praise and glory and to trust you all the more to fight our battles for us now. And we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.